Would you turn in your Bibles with me to 1 Peter chapter 1? There are a number of passages that speak about the resurrection. Obviously, the gospel accounts describe what happened that resurrection day. But because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all of the New Testament is centered around that key event, what is called the Christ event, his death for sins, his resurrection for our justification, Romans 4 says. And so I've selected just three small verses here in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, to dive into this morning for just a few moments together. Every person has events in their life that they would say change the course of their life. For me, one of those events was when my family decided to change schools when I was a freshman in high school. I was 14 years old. The school that I had been attending was falling apart uh, in multiple ways, academically as well as spiritually. I attended Christian schools growing up. And the new school that I transitioned to was well-run, challenged me academically, but more importantly, I found myself in an environment where other people, other, other kids my age, other teenagers loved Jesus, and that was new. That was totally new to me. And it was an incredible decision. That event, amongst a key other few, really altered the direction of my life. And my parents made that decision for me. It was not something that really I had a say in. I was certainly in favor of it. But ultimately, it was a great decision that altered the direction of my life. I know you've been thinking, what is it that event? What, what maybe two or three key events have you had happen to you that have changed the direction of your life? Perhaps you lost a parent to cancer as a child or teenager. Maybe it was an unexpected job opportunity or an unexpected job termination. Maybe you moved to another state or served in the military. Maybe you had an injury or an accident, or even as an adult, the sudden loss of a loved one. Everyone, no matter how young or how old, can point to key events in their life that have dramatically shaped the course of their life, whether good or bad. And no matter how significant these life events may be, no matter how impactful, there is nothing so radically transformative in a person's life than an encounter with the risen Jesus. We see this illustrated on the pages of Scripture as the disciples met the risen Jesus and their lives were totally transformed. Think of Peter, right? The great denier, the one who bragged and boasted and then denied. And here he is just a month and a half later proclaiming the gospel to thousands. What about Thomas? Doubting Thomas, we call him. We probably should call him Believing Thomas because that's how he ended up. Saul, the persecutor, transformed into Paul, the apostle and preacher. Jesus' resurrection transformed, changed, altered, whatever word you want to use, changed the course of their lives. And Jesus continues to profoundly change the lives of people today. And yet, if you're like me, too often we don't consider how profound of an impact Jesus' resurrection should have on us. We come to services like, like our Easter service here today, and we think about the gospel, and, and we rejoice, and we say amen to some of the choir songs, but it doesn't really transform us like it ought. For many of us, Easter is just another special Sunday, or one special Sunday among many, that has no effect on how we lived tomorrow. 
But that doesn't do justice to the resurrection. The apostle Peter remedies that. He begins his first letter with a doxology, a praise to God. And in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, he reveals that our salvation comes through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Through the resurrection from the dead. In these verses, Peter mentions four profound results of Jesus' resurrection of the dead that can fundamentally alter the course of your life. In fact, if we just glance at it here, Jesus' resurrection gives new birth to those who believe, grants us a living hope, gains us an eternal inheritance, and guarantees the completion of our salvation. There's There's a beautiful progression in these realities. So let's start by reading these verses together and then working through them one by one. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The first profound result of Jesus' resurrection is found in verse 3. It is this. Jesus' resurrection gives new birth to those who believe. Peter says that those who believe are begotten again. That word begotten is kind of an old-fashioned word. It simply means caused to be born again. And Jesus explained this concept of new birth in another passage of Scripture in John chapter 3 to a man named Nicodemus. Jesus told this Jewish rabbi that unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And with this statement, Jesus clarified the need for all people to have a new birth. In fact, if you think about it the other way, if we need to have a new birth, that means that we aren't alive right now. The Bible explains that all people need a new birth... Because all people are born into sin. Sin's not a politically correct word today, but it is one of the most hope-giving words because the Bible gives a solution for sin. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that all of us were born into trespasses and sins. And in fact, it says that we are dead in trespasses and sins. No life, no breathing, no heartbeat. We are dead. All have sinned, Romans 3.23 says. There is none who does good. No, not one. As Pastor Hines likes to say, born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. What does he mean by that? He means that those who do not receive Jesus as Savior will die twice. They'll physically die at the end of life, but then they will also die spiritually as they are separated from God in the lake of fire for all eternity. Those who are born twice, those who are born again, as this passage says, only have the physical death to worry about. As Romans 6.23 explains, the righteous, just repayment for sin is death. So to receive eternal life, back in John chapter 3, Jesus talking to Nicodemus, he says, very simply, you must be born again. You must be born again. How is a person born again? Nicodemus asked that same question. If you're familiar with the passage, you may remember that he kind of humorously asks, can a man, when he's old, go back into his mother's womb and be born a second time? And Jesus says, no, no, you've got the wrong idea. This is a spiritual new birth. And this spiritual new birth comes, as we've just sung, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. 
It's through the work of Christ on the cross. Jesus Christ, God's Son, came into the world and hung on that cross to pay for sin. He suffered for our sins because he committed none. As Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 would later write, who himself, speaking of Jesus, bore our sins in his own body on the tree. By his stripes, you are healed. Jesus died as a substitution so that you and I could live. And as you've heard in the scripture readings today, Jesus didn't stay dead. We wouldn't be here today if Jesus stayed dead. He is alive. And what the resurrection does is it proves the effectiveness of his death. Everything that the Bible says happened at his death on the cross is proven by his resurrection. As 1 Peter 1.3 says, we've been born again through the resurrection of Jesus. That's our text. So what does Jesus' resurrection do? It actually provides all the assurance that we need that we can be born again and made alive. Jesus' death gives life not because there's some super spiritual existential idea going on. Jesus' death gives life because he's alive. That's why there's life. He has overcome death. So for a person to be born again, they must repent of their sins and trust Jesus as Savior. This is what the gospel says over and over again throughout the scriptures. This is the moment when a person is born again. Just like when a baby is born, there is a time of birth, right? When your kids or grandkids post on Facebook that they had the baby, what do they always put? I feel like every decade goes by, new information gets added. Now we're doing like head circumference. I don't understand why we do that. Maybe it's because my kids had small heads and I didn't want to brag about a small head. I don't know. But we post time of birth, right? That's the moment they were born. The moment when a person is spiritually reborn is when they trust Jesus as Savior and repent of their sins. Peter concluded one of his sermons like this. He said in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. To repent is simply to turn away from your sin. And to believe is to trust Jesus as Lord and Savior. You say, so what do I do? What do I do with this? Well, I'm speaking, I'm I'm sure, to many who have been born again. But in a crowd of this size, there are certainly folks here that have never been born again. So what do we do? What's the next step? It's simple. Believe and repent. Trust Jesus. He is alive. If you've never received Jesus as Savior, listen to the Bible. Don't listen to my authority. I have none. Listen to the Scriptures. This Jesus gave his life for you so that you don't have to pay the penalty for your own sin. And by confessing him as Lord and Savior, your sins are blotted out. They're forgiven forever. You will be born again. Well, that might raise a question in your minds of why. Why in the world would a God so holy and loving and distant as that, we think he's distant, he's actually near to us. Why would a God like that come and and do this? Why would Jesus die on the cross for us? What's so special about me? The Bible says there's nothing special about you. 1 Peter 1.3 says that it's according to what? It's according to his own mercy. It's the mercy of God that saves you. Jesus' death proves how great God's mercy is. Will you resist great kindness on your behalf? Will you presume upon the riches of God's goodness, patience, and long-suffering, not realizing that the kindness and mercy of God is meant to lead you to repentance? 
the risen Jesus offers forgiveness. And if you've never received Jesus as Savior, can I just ask, why not? Why not? You may need to let go of fear or pride or bitterness to be saved, but it's worth it. You may need to stop making excuses and stop putting off this decision as if not thinking about the decision will make it go away. It won't. Embrace the risen Jesus as your Savior and find that he is able, as Hebrews says, to save to the uttermost. There's no threat of condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Jesus' resurrection, Peter says, gives new birth to those who believe. But the effects of Jesus' resurrection don't stop at being born again. Jesus' resurrection continues to fundamentally alter the lives of believers. Why? Because second, they've been granted a living hope. Look back at verse 3 with me. They've been granted a living hope. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope. Now when the Bible speaks of hope, it's not a cross your fingers type of wishful thinking like, oh, I I really hope I get this. It's a confident expectation. It's based upon who God is. If God is who he says he is, then I have everything assured to me. Our hope shapes what we think about the future. So as we hope for what's to come, that also then in turn affects how we live today. Let me give you an illustration. Just this morning, Kate told the boys at breakfast that if they ate their eggs, they would have a treat. What effect did that hope of a treat have on their eating? As they like to say, they smashed their food. Children at Christmas who believe in Santa try to be good because they hope for that thing that they want on Christmas morning. If you're an adult and you still hope that, we can talk after. On the flip side, though, you read about World War II history and and people in prison camps or in death camps lost their will to live because they lost hope for the future. Right now, the NCAA hosts March Madness, which is a 64-team tournament for men's and women's college basketball. Every year, only one team wins. There's not four winners. There's one winner. And uh, I think the championship game is Monday or Tuesday. It's soon. It's soon. But at the start of the tournament, every fan of all 64 of these teams hopes that their team will win. Now, I have several brothers-in-law on both sides of my family who love Illinois basketball. And the thing about Illinois is they've been terrible for a long time. It's been painful. And this year they were really good. They won the Big Ten, if I remember correctly. They were a number one seed, so they were, they were really set up to do well. They were a legitimate contender for the championship. Everyone was talking about them. And these guys, my brothers-in-law, were so excited. What they wanted in the future, that championship, to see their team crowned as champion, affected them in the present. They were giddy. You say, I I can't imagine 25-year-old men giddy. They were. And they were so excited, joyful even, when the tournament started. But all that excitement and joy came crashing down when Illinois didn't even make it out of the second round. They didn't make it past the first weekend. Their hopes of a championship disappeared. And here's the thing. As, As long as their team was alive, their hopes were alive too. We all hope in something. But what hope 
can overcome hardships and sustain a person even in the face of death? What hope is strong enough to last us through the hardest things of life? That hope has to be alive. There's only one hope that's alive, and his name is Jesus. Because Jesus is alive, all who hope in him will never be disappointed. Their hopes will never be dashed. Have you had your hopes dashed? Maybe it inflicts painful memories. Trusting and hoping in Jesus never disappoints. The Christian's hope is now inseparably connected to Jesus. Because Jesus lives, our hope does too. It's what we call our union or our participation in Christ. Because he and us as believers are united. What is true of him is extended and offered to us. Think of it the other way around. What would it take for our hope to die? It would take nothing less than for Jesus to re-enter the grave, put on the grave clothes, roll the door back to the tomb, and go back to the grave and stay dead. That's never going to happen, which means that our hope can never die. Our hope propels us through the fires of suffering. Why? Because suffering can't kill Jesus. Our hope strengthens us through seasons of hurt. Why? Because Jesus is alive. If we let it, and that's the key, if we let it, a living hope can dramatically change the way we view life, including the hardships of life. The basis for our hope is that it's connected to a Jesus who lives. And so the resurrection of Jesus not only gives spiritual life, but it also grants us a living hope. Third, it also gains us an eternal inheritance. This is found in verse 4. Jesus' resurrection secures our glorious future. Verse 4. To an inheritance, Peter writes, incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Well, what's an inheritance? An inheritance, as you probably know, is a large or small amount of assets that are passed down to the beneficiaries upon an owner's death. When a person dies, their last will and testament is opened, their assets are distributed to the parties named in the will. Some of you have been the recipients of inheritances. I think we're probably pretty much all very familiar with this concept. Well, a believer's spiritual inheritance actually stands in contrast to an earthly inheritance in four ways. Think about this with me, will you? Earthly assets accumulate during a person's life only to be passed down at their death. That's just the way it works. The inheritance Jesus gives was actually acquired at his death, and it's passed down in his life. Second, because Jesus lives, these spiritual assets are not passed down at Jesus' death, but at our deaths. We are the beneficiaries of Jesus' inheritance But we can't access these benefits until we die and get to heaven. Third, Jesus both acquired the inheritance and will be the party to give it away. He is the executor. The executor of an estate carries out the wishes of the deceased and gives away the deceased assets to those named in the will. Because Jesus lives, he's become the executor of his own inheritance. That means that he gives his children their inheritance personally. That means we get both our relationship with him and the inheritance he's laid up for us. Fourth, our inheritance is not a physical inheritance like cars, houses, or stock options. Our inheritance does not rest in some earthly vault or on an electronic ledger. 
Our inheritance is spiritual and glorious, waiting in heaven with our names on it. In fact, look at how Peter describes our inheritance. He describes it with four phrases or words, four descriptions. Our inheritance is incorruptible. That means that it's impervious to corruption. It can't be decayed. It will never die. It lasts forever. Second, it's unfading, incorruptible, and undefiled is what the New King James says. That means it never loses its shine. Undefiled, it means it's pure, richly clean, and untainted. It means it's unable to be tarnished, like pure gold is very difficult to tarnish. Third is unfading, never losing its shine. That means that the treasures of heaven never lose their luster. They never fade away. They never grow old. And then fourth, it's the phrase, reserved in heaven for you. That means that it's under your name and it's waiting for you. It's laid up for you in heaven. This treasure lies, we could say, in heaven's vaults, waiting until you arrive. All you have to do is get there and claim it. In 1947, De Beers Jewelers launched an ad campaign that changed the jewelry market for engagement rings. One commercial asked, how can you make two months' salary last forever? And the answer was simple, a diamond is forever. The messaging, in other words, was buy a diamond ring because those last forever. And Honestly, diamonds here in this life are as close to incorruptible and undefiled and unfading as anything else on earth, and yet over time, they lose their shine. They get chipped. They decay. may feel like they're forever because they outlast us, but they're not actually forever. The most precious of earthly commodities cannot compare to our spiritual inheritance reserved for us in heaven. So if our inheritance is incorruptible, pure, undefiled, unfading, already reserved for us, then why don't we live for these types of riches? Why are we so passionate about acquiring the stuff and the things of this life? We've already been promised a glorious inheritance far beyond anything we can imagine, and yet we are here, like C.S. Lewis says, playing in mud puddles in the slums when a holiday is offered us at the beach. Why are we so consumed with earthly valuables when these types of treasures wait for us in heaven? And that's why and that's how an encounter with the risen Jesus changes us. Because he gently reminds us not to make our treasures our God, but to make him our greatest treasure and to lay up treasures in heaven, not on this earth. Lastly, because Jesus rose from the dead, We have a guarantee from the Father that our salvation will be completed. Verse 5, who are kept by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. This is the final step in this progress of ideas that the resurrection of Jesus started. Track with me. The resurrection enables us to begin the Christian life at the new birth. It sustains us through the Christian life by giving us a living hope. It promises us an eternal reward, so it motivates us by an inheritance. And now it guarantees that we will make it because we're protected by God's power. How strong is this power? As strong as raising Jesus from the dead. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 says, According to the working of God's mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, 
This resurrection power, the same power that raised Christ, safeguards our souls as we believe in him. He is the one that is protecting you. As we believe him, it's through faith. That's what Peter says in verse 5. Through faith, that's how he protects us. We believe him. We rest in him. We look to him for our protection. God guards us until our salvation, Peter says, is revealed, which is a reference for when we meet Jesus, either at death or at Christ's return. Either way, we are sustained all the way through life until the next. We are kept, that is, by God's mighty power. God promises in Philippians 1 to complete the work he started in you. Why? How can he make that type of promise? How can he make that guarantee that he will see it all the way through? Because he's already raised Jesus from the dead. He's already done something that's far more difficult. Preserving us takes far less power than raising Jesus from the dead. And so the resurrection of Jesus is an argument from greater to lesser. If he raised Jesus with his mighty power, then certainly he will preserve us with his mighty power. So let us trust our God completely, right? Why do we halt? Why do we step back from God? Why do we think that we should only trust God a little bit? He is worthy and has earned the right to call us for complete trust. He preserves us with his resurrection power. After all, what obstacle can we throw up that can topple his mighty power? There is really only one response, one decision to make to these four profound realities. And it's a very simple question. Will you believe them? Will you believe them? Will you believe that Jesus is risen from the dead or will you reject the truth? This decision to believe is what fundamentally changes your life. Belief begins by being born again. That's where it starts. And some of you must decide to do that today. You must be born again. You cannot have a living hope, the guarantee of an eternal inheritance, and the promise of protection without being born again. It's like inviting a corpse to a gathering. They're not showing up because they're in the grave. My friend, be born again. Don't wait today. And after being born again, the risen Jesus continues to change the lives of his children. And again, the key issue is belief. Will this truth that Jesus is alive change your hope? Will you believe that your inheritance truly does lie in heaven? Will you believe that God will preserve you through the ups and downs of life? As Peter says in verse 5, it is through faith that these things transform us. Our big problem is that we don't believe the resurrection will have an impact on how we live. That's our problem. Let's live up to our name, right? We call ourselves believers, so let us believe. Let us believe that our living hope will sustain us. Let us believe that our inheritance awaits us in heaven. Let us start living for heavenly rewards. Let us believe that God will preserve us and rest in his mighty power. Because Jesus is alive, we possess an unkillable hope, a living hope, a hope that's been raised from the dead. 
No fiery trial can extinguish it. No storm can sink it. No pressure can squeeze us out of it. No opponent can take it down. Even death, the great enemy of mankind, cannot kill it. Our hope is alive because Jesus is alive. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. And before I pray, I just invite you to do business with God. The Spirit is at work. If you need to step out and wrestle with Him, if you need to be born again, don't wait. You may not have another opportunity. Believers among us, let's rest in what Christ has provided for us through the resurrection. Father, we are indebted beyond words to what Jesus has done. Because He has risen from the dead, there is nothing in this life that can touch us. No political party, no persecution, no financial shortfall, nothing can touch us because we are in the arms of our dear Savior. Why? Because He's not dead. He's alive. And so we pray that Your Spirit would work, Father, that new births would be accomplished today, that today would be the day of salvation, that we would rejoice with men and women, boys and girls, no matter how age or what stage of life, that they have trusted in Christ as Savior. That on Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, they too are raised from the dead. For those of us who profess to believe, let us live up to our name, Father. We struggle so much. We wrestle so much. We falter so much. But we know that your Spirit has been given to us. The Spirit that worked in Christ to raise Him from the dead is now at work in our hearts to draw us to yourself. Minister to us, Father, and encourage us today as we reflect on these truths. In Christ's name, amen.